Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. Hope you're having a great week. Uh, this week, I'm super stoked to bring to you my conversation I had with Dr. Brianna Stubbs. Now, Brianna is one of the foremost experts in exogenous ketones, and we have a fabulous conversation about not only the utility of these ketones with regards to performance, when and where they might uh, be beneficial and when they're not. We also talk about ketone esters versus ketone salts. We then discuss a little bit about exogenous ketones and their utility in health as well, which is what Brianna's current interest is. But we kick off the conversation by chatting about her background as a world-class rower, um, and she rowed for Oxford, and we talk about just her experience as an athlete and how she's now gone on post-rowing to participate in triathlon and not just participate but she qualified for Kona which as we know is not going ahead in October this year but is on the calendar for February 2022. Brianna is as I said world expert in exogenous ketone metabolism and its implications for performance resilience and health span. So she completed her PhD in metabolic physiology at the University of Oxford, studying the metabolism and application of exogenous ketone salt and esters. Um, at that time, she was on the British international rowing team as well. So prior to taking her current position as a lead translational scientist at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, she helped launch one of the world's first commercially available ketone ester drink at HVMN, often it's sort of just referred to as human. And she also set up a collaboration with the US Special Operations Command to investigate the effects of ketone drinks on physical and cognitive performance in extreme environments. So we'll pop links to uh, where to find Brianna on Twitter uh, and also on her research gate uh, in the show notes and any papers that we discuss as well. But sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Brianna Stubbs. Oh, good morning, Brianna. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me this morning. It looks like a lovely day where you are. Well, in California, we have more, many, many more good days than bad. So other than being in a bit of a drought, which makes fire season a bit of a risk, um, it's always a good day to be outside. Oh, and of course, coming from our motherland, it must be must have been quite a shift for you to come into weather like this. Did you move to California when you took your position with? Uh, I'm going to say, I always get it wrong. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I finished my PhD, and I'd been rowing a lot, and obviously outdoors a lot, and like really taking everything that the British winter and summer could throw at me, and it was just such. Uh, I noticed like in my mood 
just to be able to wake up and see blue skies, you know, almost every day of the week and not to have to like carry a raincoat or not to have to, you know, it's so funny. People here are so soft. If there's like a tiny bit of rain on the forecast, they'll be like, oh, not going to go riding. And I'm like, ah, you know, like maybe it'll rain for 10 minutes. And so really, um, I feel like I'm super hardcore for a Californian, but I'm definitely getting softer the longer that I spend time here because it's very, very good range of temperatures for training and being outside. I would take that as a compromise for being somewhere that was like that the entire time anyway. I'm from Dunedin in New Zealand and I feel moving from Dunedin to Auckland about 17 years ago that I too am quite hard because I have friends who will ditch a run if it's raining and I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah. I know. And I used to work actually in a, a, um, a shoe uh, store, shoe clinic. Oh, oh no, sorry, shoe science over here. So fitting people to running shoes. And we would have people come into the store in August. So post our winter, sort of getting into spring going, oh, I can now get outside again. Which is just like crazy. Yeah. 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 So I think I can definitely, I can get outside every single day of the year here just with like maybe a tiny bit of discomfort on the one, one or two days. Um, yeah, like I said, the real thing that is uh, the risk here is the wildfire season. So the last few years, the fires have been pretty bad. And when the air quality is bad, it's not really safe to be exercising outside. So that's the only thing that would yeah. would get us on the on the trainer. I got to say, I spent a load of money. I moved house and I wasn't quite near such quite such convenient bike routes. I was like, oh, I'll buy myself a smart trainer. And I've used it twice because <laughs> I, found best, I, I found bike routes and I can stay outside them. Most of the time I'm outside. Oh, amazing. Is it safe to cycle where you are as well? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a big cycling community in the Bay Area. So I think drivers sort of are aware of cars and a lot of the routes that I use have like protected bike lanes and all of that kind of stuff. So, I've, and also I've just been, I feel like pretty confident on the road. You know, I, I'm not scared by cars too much or even though that they're the big metal box that weighs a lot more than me yeah so maybe I should be a bit more careful now well I'm not surprised that you're not scared Brianna because you have um as I was looking over your bio like a very impressive competitive uh athlete career not only behind you but also right now as you're training for Kona which is amazing and if it's all right with you to sort of start with that background and as I understand it you've been really active from a young age was that in part because of your parents being so active that's correct so um my dad did the first ever transatlantic rowing race from the Tenerife um over sort of in the Canary Islands to Barbados over in the Caribbean and he did that when I was uh six so I kind of grew up with him doing all of this endurance training and always pushing himself and I was kind of like the son that he never had because my sister, my younger sister wasn't really into sports that much. And my dad used to take me out to the beach and we had, there was like some zigzags up along the cliff and he used to make me do hill sprints up these zigzags. Um, And I did my first ever mile running race when I was uh, seven or six or so, you know, very small. And I kind of got bitten by the bug. I was always very competitive. Um, And so I did a little, I did like baby triathlon when I was eight or nine. Um, and I had this stinky little road bike. And so I kind of actually triathlon was one of the things I did first and then got into rowing. And I feel like, um, you know, I was pretty much rowing full time from when I was 12 through till when I finished re- and retired when I was 25, 26. So um, the rowing became like my main athletic career. And my, but my dad doing the ocean rowing meant that when I was 12, I sort of had the opportunity to go on one of his training roads with him across the British Channel. Amazing. And so I was the youngest youngest person to row the British Channel um and that's you know I 
it's more like, you know, I had the infrastructure in place around me, but I guess it says something about, you know, the kind of uh, my adventurous spirit. And recently my parents dug up a clip of me being interviewed for the news and I'm quite a cute little uh, plucky, little, plucky little 12 year old. But yeah, I guess that was just a sign of things to come. But then, um, yeah, so I was on the British rowing team first when I was 16 and under 16 team and then uh, won a silver medal at the Junior World Championships, went on to the under 23 team as an open weight. Uh, and uh, rode in the eight and then lost weight and went down from the open weight class to the lightweight class and won a gold medal and then competed as a lightweight athlete from 2013 through to 2016 um, and on the senior team and won a silver and a gold medal at the rowing world championships in sculling boat. Super impressive. And rowing is such a hard sport as someone who gets on an erg for and grits it up for like two minutes. And I'm like, yeah, that's enough. Like, I don't even know how people do it. Um, when you were you're sort of in the throes, I suppose, of your competitive rowing, you were also at Oxford studying ketone metabolism. How did you get into that sort of as a topic? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually got into it because they were advertising for subjects to come and take part in these research studies elite athlete subjects and um so the tests that they were doing was uh, a 30 minute rowing machine test with and without ketone drinks and a two kilometer rowing machine test with and without ketone drinks and so they were trying to recruit like a lot of the university and the area's top rowers to come and do this trial and actually oxford's quite well situated for a number of good rowing universities but also the national squad center as well so they had quite a good pool of people to recruit from and um I remember seeing the ad and at the time I was in my first year and I was like, hey, you know, um, might as well get paid to take part in this research study and do these row machine pieces that I would be doing in training anyways. Um, and that's how I met the researchers. And then I was actually, before I did my PhD, I was studying to be a medical doctor. And in Oxford, you do a research project as part of your medical training. And so I did my research project in with the ketone lab and was so interested by it. And it just sort of fitted for me that I ended up wanting to take a sabbatical to pursue the rowing a little more full time mm. before I went and did clinical medicine. And so they gave me a place as a research assistant and that turned into my PhD. And then I never actually, in the end, I didn't finish my medical training. So yeah. it kind of re- rewrote, rewrote the course of my life somewhat. Yeah, amazing. And what about your, um, at the time, were you in open weight uh, rowing or were you kind of headed into the lightweight running when you were sort of started to study ketones? Yeah, um, it's actually funny because, yeah, I think the year that I took off to row was the first year that I was training full time as a lightweight. Mm. And, and, and that was when I was starting as a research assistant and really starting to get into this field. And it was funny because I felt like, especially being so energy restricted, I was probably in ketosis just from like calorie restriction and training, even though I never and I've never eaten a ketogenic diet. Um, just because, I mean, really for me, like the intensity of the rowing race being only eight minutes long, it's never really seemed to fit that much. And also the way that the rowing season uh, would work was that we never really had much gap between the world championships and then starting training and the trials and selection went all year. And I thought that if I was going to do a ketogenic diet, I'd really need to allow myself a season or like a good amount of time to adapt and get on to you know, feeling good on that plan. And so it just, it just never really fitted. Mm. Um, but I certainly, the, all of the research that I was doing on, you know, optimal energy metabolism for exercise, understanding starvation, physiology, understanding, you know, the different ways that different macronutrients affect performance. It was really, really helpful for me 
um, in my like athletic career to understand all of that as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you mentioned that you had to drop weight to get from that sort of open class down to lightweight, um, around 10 kilos or so. Pretty challenging yeah. in that rowing environment where a lot of people around you in the same boat. Like what's the, what's it like? Um, so I actually lost or like did a lot of the weight loss when I was still, I sort of, um, been in the under 23 team but I wasn't training in the national squad training center I was training with my club and so for that year I actually did the weight loss outside of the national team system and then I turned up at the trials and trialed as a lightweight it was really challenging um I'd previous I don't know I I, I can only really work in kilograms so mm. I guess I'd been like 66 to 68 kilograms and the lightweight race weight is 57 mm. so it was definitely like around about 10 kilograms and it was so funny because so many and people had told me they were like oh you should do lightweight oh you should do lightweight but you know I was doing all of this training and I was not cut but you know I was like not not carrying any obvious extra weight yeah and so I didn't think that I could would be able to do it but I you know picked some sort of you know I got rid of a load of snacks picked out some rigid like ideas around what I would have like post training and all of that and you know the first time that I lost the weight it came off like fairly steadily and I managed to stay down fairly easily for the first couple of years I was lightweight but it's interesting and I'm interested talking to you over in New Zealand because I know you had a one of your Olympic rowers um, Zoe McBride who was training for the Olympics and actually couldn't compete because of overtraining mm. um, or, you know, health issues. And actually, the longer that I was lightweight, the more and more health issues that I had. And I think that now I'm finished and now, you know, I'm, I'm still training like 20 hours a week. But it's taken me a while to like rebalance all of my hormones and feel like I have like a normal, healthy relationship with like fueling around training. Because it was just so, my body didn't really want to be 57 kilos. Yeah, yeah. I got that. I got down. And it felt like possible and doable. I ate, mainly what I did was ate just like a ton of vegetables, like a ton of stuff that was just like filling and not really like doing that much for me. And, but it was just, you know, I did a lot of weight training and I gained muscle bulk and it just got harder and harder and harder to like stay at the weight. And when I was, uh, so I guess I was, would have been 22 when I first started losing the weight to go down and compete at that, in that category. And then the big difference was being then like 25, 26 and still trying to be that category. Um, when you're just not like naturally, I've gone back to pretty much the weight that I was at before, like a little heavier, but you know, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard. It's hard. It's not not always healthy as well. Yeah, and um, I've heard you sort of speak about the whole, I found it really interesting, the whole system with how people train. And I don't know if this is sort of across the board in terms of this is how it is in rowing, but um, like a real centralized system where you just go in, you do the program that's, you know, it's not as individualized as it could be to help sort of, I don't know, encourage people to be their best you know, perform at their best given their individual sort of variations. Isn't that interesting how sport is still run like that, given what we know about how people respond? But I guess it's, you know, it's a, it has had its success in the past. I don't know. Yeah, I think that 
when you've got like a big system or I mean so firstly I think the, one of the weird things about rowing is it's both an individual sport and a team sport so you know you're going to be competing in the world championships almost everyone's going to be in a crew crew boat and then I can understand yeah like it's going to be quite difficult to have you know someone who's got more of a sprinter phenotype and someone who's more of an endurance phenotype who kind of need to do maybe like slightly different training like but we're all in the same eight person boat. So like, how are we going to like tailor that? So, so I think that the philosophy and training philosophy in rowing comes from the fact that the majority of work is in crew boats. That said, um, the national team, you do a lot more of your like selection work as an individual. Mm. And so it's actually that philosophy is not that helpful for that. And then I think that um, maybe this would be true of like a number of national setups, but generally you've always got people wanting to compete so all you need to do as a national squad is like set your performance standards yeah. and and your training program. And then the people that survive are the people that you pick. Yeah. You're not that interested, you know, as a selector, ostensibly. And, you know, maybe this is a bit of a cynical way to look at it. And, you know, I don't want to like get anyone's backs up. But I, I felt like if I had dropped out, then there would have been someone step up to fill my place. So it really became like my responsibility to to do what I could with the program to optimize my performance so you know if I was feeling fatigued like I could just like surreptitiously take off a you know 10-15 minutes at the end of a water session or you know just back off the intensity just a little bit you know but there were some things where you were monitored and and a lot of things that were timed and kind of somewhat contributing to selection so it was just like training in a centralized environment has a lot of pros but also a lot of cons yeah and I think that like I felt in a way, because I was sort of the lightweight rowing women's rowing team wasn't a, that much of wasn't that big and wasn't that much of a priority. And so there would be times where um, I, the squad would go on training camp and they'd only take two lightweight women and I would be at home. And those times when I could like completely set my own training were actually like very constructive for me. Yes, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And does it like and just finally on the whole rowing thing, was it a hard decision to step away from rowing Brianna or had you already begun when you said that you were initially like as a young kid into running and a bit of triathlon and stuff like that so had you always sort of had that other interest in in other sports as well I mean I think that the time where I stepped away there were just like lots of things going on in my life um so I finished my PhD I so I won well so I was in contention for the Olympics didn't make the Olympic team because, um, as I said, they only took two lightweight women and I was probably, you know, like really, really just like so nearly there. And then that year I was selected for the four-person vote. We won the world championships. And it felt like, you know, a big milestone to have won the senior world championships. Um, it felt like a long time until the next Olympic Games. And I, I don't think anyone would have known now that it would be a five-year cycle yeah. um, between Rio and, and competing now. And I also had just finished my PhD as well. And so it just felt like kind of like a closing of a number of chapters. And I was also just pretty exhausted because I didn't have much, I didn't really have a mental break between the world championships and like going back into that training cycle because I was still writing my thesis at that time. And I just, I knew I needed a break. Mm. I really, really needed a break. And um, then in, in, as I was sort of decompressing a little bit and sort of trying to think about, you know, I was starting to be a bit more marginal on weight I was like pretty, I'd been, hadn't had a period for like three or four years, was just generally like pretty low mood. I wasn't just, I just wasn't like super healthy and I knew that I just needed some time for myself. And in that time was when HVMN um, made the partnership with my professor over in Oxford and then they were going to like launch the ketone drink. And it just seemed like this opportunity to 
take on like a completely new challenge in a completely new place. So I wasn't really thinking about, oh, I'm going to move on and do a different sport at this point. I was more just like, wow, you know, how do I feel about the idea of training for another four years mm. through this selection system? You know, I'll finish my PhD, sure. And actually some of the coaches have been like, oh, you know, maybe it'll be great. Now you don't have to like try do your studies at the same time. But actually for me, I felt like having something anything outside of rowing that gave me like a sense of self-worth other than like my latest like performance score yeah. was really important important in that like um, system where everything was so geared towards performance and it you know actually I was almost a little bit worried about not having something else on yeah. the side because you know you just would really like ride the and when it was so there's only those two spots like literally anything could happen and I just didn't wasn't quite ready to like fully commit to the next four years of training and then when the opportunity came up, I felt like it was definitely a lot easier to step away from rowing, going to the other side of the world, yeah. because, you know, I wasn't still near all of my friends who were training. I didn't have to be like reminded of that all of the time. And also just, you know, as we were saying at the start of the interview, California is just like this beautiful place to explore. I had been, you know, riding my bike a little as cross training and, you know, I had a little bit of a running background and the com HVM and the company, a lot of that people in the company were active. And so I, you know, used sport as a way to meet people and to get involved in like the community out here. And I met met so many people on group rides. And I wasn't necessarily thinking about triathlon specifically. It was more just like, you know, scratching the exercise itch. And the first thing I did seriously was a half marathon. Um and, you know, it's sort of like kind of that then the competitive like oh I wonder what I can do next yes. bug, like sort of started coming back in and it was like oh you know me and one of my co-workers let's go do a half Ironman and then I did my first half Ironman and qualified for the half Ironman world champs in South Africa and I was like oh I guess I'm going to do another half Ironman and mm -hmm. okay so it went from like oh you know I'm just kind of doing a bit of swimming and a bit of running and a bit of biking to now you know when I trained for the first full Ironman that I did in 2019 I had a plan and I had a coach and it was like okay um, and I realized a little bit after that, that it was like, well, you know, I kind of did my time suffering and like giving up a lot of stuff for, um, sport and I'm still prepared to suffer and give up stuff, but I have a, like a, a few more like boundaries and limits and I want it to be fun. Yeah. And so, um, actually, uh, this training cycle, I trained with an app called athletica.ai, which was designed by Paul Larson and his team and it was great because it gave me this really solid like framework of training that was responsive a bit like you know we were just discussing how previously like training wouldn't have been that personalized to me this training was like personalized based on like baseline testing that I did and then you fill in your like perceived exertion and and you know how hard you rate the session and then the uh, technology will then like tweak mm. the subsequent workouts to like give you more load or less load or whatever depending on how you're feeling and so I felt like that was giving me because the bit that I couldn't really do myself was knowing where to where to like push on and where to to back off. It's, that's the hardest thing. Yeah. And as an endurance athlete, I think that's one of the things that we all struggle with. Right. It's actually for people like us, it's not whether or not you're going to get out the door. It's when you're going to pull the pin on the session or change the session to make it a bit easier, because there's something a bit wired that just makes us sort of think, oh, no, I need to go out for a bit longer and a bit more. You know, I think that actually that the where the default for most people is going to be like is like a little bit too it's 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 never too it's never hard enough on the hard days and never easy enough on the easy days. So I felt like when I when I'd had a coach, some of the hard weeks that she had me to do, I would like look at it and I'd be like, 
there's just like, how am I going to get through? This is just like too, like, this is so hard. And I, you know, you, it would be harder than anything I would set myself. And then the easy weeks, she'd have like two or three days off and I'd be like going up the walls and I wouldn't <laughs> want to take those days off. So it's like n- neither the hard weeks or the easy weeks are like what I would program for myself. So I felt like if I was left to my own devices, I wouldn't have that much periodization. I would just train like quite hard, but not really hard or that easy, you know, just yeah. be like kind of vanilla all the way through. So I feel like having a structure of a plan and the bonus of like a responsive plan is that you get that like periodization somewhat. Um, and, you know, that, that takes that bit off my plate. But then because of the, you know, I, I felt like when I had a coach, if I didn't do it exactly to the letter, then I felt like I, you know, was like personally offending my coach and that that was bad. But with Athletica, it's like, well, you know, it's got like a four hour ride, but if I do three and a half hours or four and a half hours and it's kind of like plus or minus and the plan will incorporate that and it won't, you know, it's not going to bother the plan. It'll just like change what I do subsequently to account for that. Or if it's like, well, you know, I, the plan said to do 45 minutes. So this is a good example, actually. The plan has got like race efforts in the long weekend rides, but I would be like, oh, well, I'm going to go from like the bottom of this hill to the next time that there's a descent. And if it's, 50 minutes or an hour then like I'll take that off a subsequent one so it felt a bit less like very very regimented Mm. and a bit more a little bit more flexible and I was still getting the same like training stimulus and all of that so it worked pretty well for me it sounds awesome and like I won when I saw that you had qualified for Kona and that you'd used Athletica I was super interested in it because you're just such a proficient athlete you know and often people think that people like you would because you've been so successful in the past then you're absolutely gonna have a coach and and be guided in that sort of what people would say is sort of um uh maybe gold standard in terms of training for an event but but I mean how fabulous you were able to take the Athletica AI app and sort of just believe that you were going to get fitter and get what you want from it like I think that is like it's quite a a thing that people could take some sort of confidence in when they're using this new sort of technology yeah you know there's so much that goes into um like having a successful performance and so I'd almost say like when you're just getting started maybe you don't need a coach but you definitely need like a network of people around you to help you learn like things about nutrition mm. or things about, you know, things about physiology and pacing and, you know, the tricks of the trade. As whereas I felt like I kind of um, was able to skip through a lot of that stuff, maybe not some of the triathlon specific stuff, mm. but, you know, I was um, especially some of, you know, like I kind of knew how to train yeah. from my years of growing. And then also having it had a year with a coach, I got some very good ideas about what specific things for running and biking especially like were getting me like fitter and stronger and more robust um but then I think you know what else there are some things that a coach uh, that that um a coaching app doesn't do as well like like those kind of like pre-race talks and things like that mm. and you know again I'm lucky that here in the Bay Area um, I have a number of friends that compete and you know I've, I've done stuff at the high level so actually I could just like talk to them and I actually did speak briefly with I sent Paul an email and he replied so you know I think um but for the day-to-day stuff I actually think that Athletica is better than a coach because when I had a uh, like a person coach she had maybe like I don't know 20 30 40 athletes and she's not going into my power files and Mm. seeing if I hit you know if I hit those powers and like oh well maybe you hit it but your heart rate was off the chart like your zone two was zone two power, but you were like 
15 beats higher like that's not right as whereas the AI was going to see that mm. um, and so actually for managing athletes day to day just like managing load I think that the AI is awesome and I, I was talking to Paul after after I qualified at Tulsa and I was like you know it was almost weird because there was so few days where I felt like I couldn't get up and train that I was almost like oh, is this like hard enough like you know some of the stuff that's in the the kind of cornerstones of the bike program with Athletica are some strength endurance work so like low cadence to build bike specific strength but then also high intensity hit work and I was saying to Paul I was like well in the past I've done like you know one minute on one minute off or 40 on 20 off like things that are like felt like you know you get into the hole and mm. you can't see and it's like really painful and you know feels like a great work and I was like you know can I mix it up because 30 30 like you know I don't know like it's hard but it's you know it doesn't really feel that hard and he's like well that's the beauty of it because you don't want to be in a hole when you've then got to go out the next day or two days later and bike for five hours and like actually you know the neuromuscular and you get a lot of the like physiological effects just with that so I think that um everything that's gone into building that plan makes a lot of sense and it was sort of like you could see the fitness building you could visualize it in the app and um you know, I felt like I was getting more robust. I felt like I was getting stronger, but it wasn't like quite the same like suffering um, yes. as when I'd been on like a plan that was not personalized. And I felt like was, you know, maybe five, 10 percent too much on some days. Yeah, interesting. And I was chatting to Paul about HIT actually, and that'll come out before um, I chat to you, Brianna, and he said exactly that, that as athletes, we too often want to sort of go to the well, is what he says, you know, and um, really go balls to the wall with those hit sessions, but actually that's not how you should necessarily execute them, and and I, when I was listening to him talk, I was like, oh man, who knew, you know, yeah. <laughs> I thought that it was all just it's supposed to be like super duper hard. Um Brianna, oh, and one last thing actually I'll say, what I love about it too, because I went in and just tried it out just to see sort of what it was like, was that it actually does use RPE, you know, and, yeah. you know, as mm -hmm. also as athletes with this um, access to so much technology that when we rely on so much data and, and things like that, that I, I think it's really easy to forget that how we feel we do in the session is actually a super important metric as well, you know. Yeah, there was a really interesting research study of like, uh, I think it was a professional cycling team, and they correlated perceived exertion for workouts with like the power uh, output for these workouts. And it's a really, really tight, once you're like used to training, your perception of how you're doing will often link really closely to your output and mm. your like load that you complete in the sessions. So I think that you're totally right. Um, nowadays, you know, we want all of the data possible. So I think as an athlete, the challenging thing is to treat yourself as a bit of a black box. And you've got like all of the inputs coming in, like um, not only have you got your output data from that workout, whether that's power or speed or heart rate is one thing as well. Um, then you've got your sort of perceived exertion, but you've also got just like your life stress as well. Mm. And I think that one thing that worked really well for me about um, Athletica is like, well, you know, like I got a you know, full-time job and so I could move stuff around according to like how my work schedule was going to be. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm treating this as like, I don't know, maybe one day I'd be a professional triathlete, but it's not that likely. I've done my professional sport. Most of us competing as age groupers 
are, you know, obviously there are some very serious age groupers who have a lot of time to commit to it, but most of us are trying to do it around work. And so it's like, well, how can I be as efficient as possible, but also recognize that what I do in my life outside of sport impacts on sport as well. And so sometimes there might just be a day where, you know, all of the, you know, the power and heart rate and everything's all right, but mentally you're just kind of fatigued because you've been mm. working really, you're stressed because of like something that's going on at work. So you kind of, I think... I was in a fortunate position that having just trained for so long, I'm like pretty well attuned to how I feel. And I think that works really well in racing as well, because I can, you know, I'm not fixated on a output, a lot yeah. of it by like a feel. And I think that's what can, you know, that's a, just a really important thing for people to learn over time. But it's, it's a bit like a, you know, muscle that you have to train. I don't think you get there overnight and you have to go to those extremes of exhaustion and, freshness to know what those feel like yeah for sure and Brianna can I ask about your sort of nutrition throughout this because obviously you know we talked about the uh, your energy restricted approach to enable you to make weight for lightweight and then subsequent you know you finished up with rowing you moved to California you'd start working in industry in ketone metabolism and and you know bringing the um, ketone ester to market like how did, or did your nutrition change and how did it change sort of over that time yeah I mean it's been it's been a bit of a what is it now three four year journey and I think like the initially like I finished I really didn't want to have any rules or restrictions like having you know I it was it was a period of like unlearning a lot of like unhealthy habits and like thought patterns around food so I would definitely I've never ever eaten unhealthy it wasn't like I finished mm. and I was like give me all of the cake you know like it was it was about like relearning that like oh, you know, if I'm going to go and do this much exercise, I actually need to fuel for this. And actually, it's okay once or twice a week if you stop at get a coffee shop and get like a little bit of a treat. Like, you know, and that's, that's okay. You don't have to feel anxious about that. So there was a period of like, just like, like unlearning a lot of un harmful and unhealthy like thought patterns. And then, you know, there was a period where I experimented a little bit with like uh, intermittent fasting. And I found that I was just like, because I was, it was a bit of a weird emotional journey to go from being like 57, 58 kilos back up to being mm. 68 kilos when like so much of my like performance worth had been around like the number on the scales. Mm. And um, it was so funny because if, the, if you'd taken me at any point on that weight spectrum, I'd have probably never been that happy with my body. Like when I was super skinny, it was like, oh, you know, like you've got a bicep vein, that's really weird. You know, you have thought that in somewhere in that between 58 and 68, there'd be a point where you're like, wow, you know, I look lean. I look, you know, there's not really anything spare. I look great. But like, I never was at a point where I was like, wow, I'm really happy with how I look. So um, I tried not to like, focus on any of that too much because it was just not you know it, it needed it was the habits that needed to be broken but then you know as I say I sort of like oh you know maybe if I did some fasting or like I'm kind of like putting on weight like when am I going to stop like maybe something like fasting or something like that you know doesn't need to be all of the time but I can just do some like some periods and maybe that'll like help my body like find wherever the new normal is and I found that actually like it was it would impact too much on my like all of my subsequent training mm. to do any period of like energy restriction so I experimented with 24 and 36 hour fast like once a week and 24 was just about doable mm. because you would have the, the you train for a day you'd eat dinner and then you wouldn't eat again till the next day and you could do something like you know maybe some strength or something like kind of low intensity and then maybe the day after the fast you'd feel like you know 
seven out six or seven out of ten mm. not ten out of ten but like you know not awful but if I did a 36 hour fast where I went from dinner on a Monday didn't eat at all on Tuesday and then ate breakfast on Wednesday or I think a couple of times I would try and go for a, I tried to go for a run before then breaking my fast I remember running along and being like <gasps> oh my god like oh my god this is like awful um surprising right um so and then and then I would be you know that not only that day would be a write-off so it'd be like the fasting day would be a bit of a write-off that day would be a bit of a write-off and then you'd be so depleted that the day after would also be a bit like seven out of ten so just you know I don't know I experimented with it and all of the you know everything I would have known from performance sport probably would have told me that that was going to happen but it was I guess somewhat useful to see it myself um then I guess you know it's interesting having worked and researched a ketogenic diet, people always expect that I would have like followed it at some mm. point. It took me like two and a half, three years to get my period back again mm. after having lost it to rowing. And while that process was happening, the last thing that I wanted to do was do anything that would have like continued to make my body think that it was still starving. Yeah, yeah. And so it just like, it just didn't seem right. Um, and then, you know, honestly, the more that I've read about the ketogenic diet for sort of the intensity of exercise that I still do, you know, because if I was a 55 year old female age grouper doing the Ironman in like, I don't know, 15 to 16 hours and train it, you know, like then maybe and, you know, maybe because I'm aging, my metabolism's also changing. I'm less insulin sensitive. Like maybe that works really well for that, like intensity and age. But I think that, you know, I'm still doing a lot of like higher intensity exercise. I'm still like very like metabolically healthy. Mm. There's no reason. There's no reason for me having also, you know, and then also with the background of having like been energy restricted for a while. It just doesn't seem like it would offer so much extra performance gain to go on a ketogenic diet totally. and I'm not you know I don't eat I don't eat like a crap diet you know I eat like healthy sources of carbs I eat them around training um I make sure you know it's like I'll still uh, you know maybe two or three days a week do a morning zone two workout having fasted because it's like pretty easy and I'll eat when I get back and mm. you know I don't want to I don't always you know it, but it kind of depends on how I feel sometimes if I wake up and I'm like oh gosh I'm kind of hungry I'll have something small mm. but you know zone, zone two in the morning it's like eh, you know like I'm not so like dogmatic about that but if I'm going to do a workout or anything mm. with intensity it I feel better if I feel beforehand and then for racing I've been very lucky in that I seem to have a very you know a strong stomach and it doesn't sit badly with me you know another reason to go on a ketogenic diet would be if you can't get enough fueling in during racing to keep up your performance and so but I don't have any issues like that Mm. so you know I can I can you know eat bars and gels and uh, like drink energy drink on the bike as much as I need to to keep going and you know so if if if, uh, my parents or anyone I cared about had certain like health conditions where the ketogenic diet is like potentially effective then I would recommend that they do it but for me it's just like never really seemed like the juice was worth the squeeze no no I totally get that and it's interesting what you say about the fasting like I've I've never done anything like that extended fast and in part because I love training so much that I can see that it would just be absolutely detrimental one to training but also to my body to because I would probably do what you've just described and like, oh, I've done a 24-hour fast, which I didn't even know that I could do. But then, oh, yeah, no, I'll still do that run. Like, 
and yeah, yeah, how yeah. detrimental is that you know but you see it all the yeah. time in athletes and I think it's just because we've got so much access to information in and around how to optimize sort of health and performance and people like to use every sort of tool in the toolbox and so you know they're like oh yeah no I'll chuck in this 24-hour fast post my hard kind of you know my long bike ride and you know I'll go for a swim and I'll get that autophagy you know getting up there you know like that kind of yeah. thing it's, they're, they're pretty um common mistakes that I see with people I think yeah I think it's like you know everyone everyone has different uh like schedules and training schedules and like you know uh, energy requirements generally like you need energy to train but some people you know with the intensity of training may feel fine if they did you know a little bit of like slightly longer like fasting period with or around some training and I do think the data around like low carb trains are like train train low and then you know or sleep low type strategies like carbohydrate periodization is really important I think actually that's a really important point to emphasize and I'm sure you know you don't need me on your podcast to tell your listeners this but like the you should, your carbohydrate availability should match the intensity of your training yeah so if you're you know like if you're about to go and do an Ironman training ride where you're going to ride for six hours and then run 10 miles, then you absolutely need some carbohydrates. But the day, you know, two days after that on my Monday when I'm doing my recovery, obviously you need to make sure you've covered off any losses or deficits that you created over the weekend. But you can probably have like a lower glycemic carb day. You know, it's like it's about tweaking the nutrition to match the training. Totally. So it's not like there's one gold standard, like thou shalt eat oatmeal every single morning and a banana after every single training session and a protein shake, you know, like that's, that doesn't work either. No. So. And now Brianna, have you used, do you use ketones during your training or for your racing? Like how do you incorporate that if you do? Yeah. So um, when I, when, when I started triathlon racing, the state of the research was that ketones, uh, ketone esters taken around sport with carbohydrate were potentially improving performance. Mm. And so I would use, I would use the ketone ester when I started, I would use it um, in between the swim and the bike. Um, and I felt like, um, you know, I, I guess I didn't really have that much to compare it to, but I felt like it was sort of somewhat helpful. Um, and then, you know, really in the last couple of years, the work that I was part of at Oxford, um, the under real world conditions have been shown to offer, ketones have shown to offer like less of an obvious benefit. Mm. And so the, re, the research that we did at Oxford brought people in after an overnight fast and then we fed them the ketones uh, or carbohydrate. We didn't give them like, it wasn't studied under conditions of optimal carbohydrate availability. And so the research studies that came on after that where people would have like a full meal, but then also the ketones and the carbohydrate, there was like a bit more of a negligible effect. And then mm. more recent research has shown that um, by themselves, ketones weren't helping, but given with uh, sodium bicarbonate, they were helping. So it's sort of like, it seems like to me, as a scientist, the research that we did has been in like um, refined and honed by people like practitioners, people who are more like practitioners. The studies that we did we're actually more designed to be like metabolism and basic science studies. And, you know, um, and then the people that did the subsequent work were actually sports scientists and testing these things under real world conditions. So, you know, I think that ketone esters profoundly shift metabolism. Sort of in summary, the data around ketone esters for uh, pre-exercise performance got to me to be a little bit like, um, just like a little bit less compelling. I wouldn't say that it would be like, oh, it's detrimental to performance, but it wasn't like clearly to me beneficial. 
Um, and so I just don't use ketonesses as a pre-workout or as a pre-race um, supplement anymore. Uh, I do use them for recovery after like a long workout. That's where the data is earlier, but you know, to me a little more compelling, but you know, I'll, I'll update my, the way I'm using them depending on like the research that comes out. Um, yeah. Super interesting. So you, I mean, unsurprisingly, ketone esters are super hard to sort of get your hands on for a lot of people. And, but I've been like, you, do you know the, you will know the company prove it who do the ketone salts. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about salts versus esters before. And I know obviously, um, that the amount of beta hydroxybutyrate that you get from the salts is a lot lower than the esters. And there are different types of forms of the, um, the ketones that are provided by the, the salts, but maybe it must be placebo because when I have them, I feel like, like pre-workout, when I have the, the, the salts, like it feels like it actually helps me with regards to like a higher intense workout. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, um, well, one thing I would say is that sometimes prove it have caffeine in their salts. So that could be, could be what you're feeling for some of them, some of the blends they have. And actually there was a research paper, which, um, I mean, I wouldn't have run the study like this, but they compared a ketone salt that did have caffeine and like, uh, like maybe it was taurine or L-leucine. It was, like, it was a ketone salt blend uh, and they compared it to water for performance and they found a performance effect. And I'm like, well, you know, like, is it the caffeine? We don't know. Um, but, you know, certainly I feel like everything out there, right? If you are happy with the, what it costs you to use it and it makes you feel good, then like, what's the downside? If you, if you, if you feel like it makes a difference for you, then great. Um, and it's the same with the ketone esters. We've had, you know, when I was at HVMN, like a number of people be like, I feel amazing. This feels excellent. Like definitely would use this again and again. And like for those people, and actually we see this in the science, you know, in the, in the data, raw data for individuals, you see some people who have very big changes in their performance and some people who have none or some people who have small decrements. And it's like, well, you know, Maybe there's a difference, and we saw this in some of our work, that fiber type of athletes, so if you're more slow twitch versus more fast twitch, that can affect how you respond to this kind of thing. So, you know, we know now that even a supplement like caffeine, where there's really, really robust literature around performance improvement, there's actually differences in genotype on how people metabolize caffeine that mean that some people get a huge benefit and some people actually get worse when they take caffeine. So, I mean, for, you know... <laughs> As a scientist, I have to say, like, the data does not, like, conclusively support use of ketonesters for sport. However, there may be, there's there's probably context under which it's useful. Like, some of the pre-workout stuff with bicarbonate, that's kind of interesting. And, like, maybe in time, we'll work out the exact protocol for, like, what length of sport, you, you know, benefits best, what intensity, all of those things. You know, I'd still be optimistic that you know, given the, the, how, <clears throat> how profound a metabolic shift it is, that there's some, something that's useful for, we just don't really know it yet. And then um, I'd say that within that, like if an individual buys something, tries something and can notice a benefit in their own performance, then like absolutely continue doing it. Yeah. And Rena, you mentioned ketone esters for recovery. There are some products who have beta hydroxybutyrate within their product. It might be like six grams or nine grams or something. Do we know how much is required sort of in the body to help elicit some of those benefits that ketones kind of provide? That's a really great question. And like the simple answer is like we have like working hypotheses, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. Um, 
in the like pre-workout space, there was a hypothesis that ketones needed to get to around about like two millimoles to have an effect. And so I guess that for now, that's like the best working hypothesis for, you know, a um, beneficial effect of recovery. All of that said, um, in some clinical like disease use cases, we see benefits in um, terms of like, say, heart function and brain function, even with like 0.5 or 0.6 millimole. So I actually think that we absolutely need to define the like effect threshold. We don't know it yet. The, on a conservative estimate, it's probably like two millimoles, but it's really possible that with these lower levels of ketones, like you probably would get with a five, um, a, a five to nine gram dose, that that might actually still activate some of these processes. And the way I think about it is a little bit is also like, are you interested in ketones as an energy or ketones as more of a signal? Um, if you need ketones as an energy, then probably more is better. Um, but if you need ketones as a signal, then the like you know the maximal effect is probably achieved at a lower um, a lower level of ketones in the blood. So with that, then if you can get, and I'm almost sort of shifting gears a little bit here, but that is super interesting that the kind of the signal that you get from even 0.5 to 0.6 has that yeah. sort of health or uh, has changes with regards to cardiac and, and brain, which would suggest then that like a well-formulated ketogenic diet will provide a lot of the benefits that people might find from ketones if you can reach that level within the, yeah, the diet? Um, I think it all depends, right? So I think that some people um, uh, find a ketogenic diet like palatable and easy to stick to. And I think that for some health indications, you know, I was talking about that, like, you know, if I was a 55 year old age grouper, yeah metabolically less healthy I've been like pummeling my system with goo for like you know 40 years 30 40 years like I think that there are some use cases where lower in carbohydrate intake absolutely is like an important part of like the the benefit that you see but then for some people who for some reason or other like really don't like you know really don't like the idea of lowering dietary carbohydrate really can't like certain populations like you know, for example, the ketogenic diets used to treat epilepsy and maybe ketogenic ketone drinks or ketone boosting strategies could be really helpful where you have, you know, it's difficult to get like good adherence or on the flip side of the age spectrum with some people with cognitive decline, if they don't want to, can't like, you know, if you're their care and it's hard to change that diet, then like in those cases, like, you know, a well-formulated ketogenic diet might be difficult to implement. And in that case, like a ketone supplement could provide you know potentially be like an adjuvant to to lower in dietary carbohydrate um yeah i mean it just it's what's cool about ketone supplements or exogenous ketones i don't really like the term supplements but what's cool about that class of molecules is it enables us to separate the effects of dietary carbohydrate restriction and and high dietary fat intake importantly as well from the effects of the ketones directly um so especially if it's not well formulated, which is also always a big risk when people do these unsupervised, you know, based off like a diet book that they get off the internet. You know, you, there's just definitely a risk that people change their <clears throat> like blood lipids or, you know, affect some of their risk markers in a way that may not be beneficial if you're not doing, doing it in a right, in the right way. So or as a little bit of a replacement if what you were interested in was not the benefits of lowered carbohydrate. And, you know, but 
it absolutely should never replace a healthy diet, whether or not that's, you know, it's not going to cover up, you know, a multitude of sins. Uh, if you go and eat like pizza and donuts one day, just eating exogenous ketones on top of that doesn't give you the benefits of like keto. Yeah. Because you've, because obviously there are ketones and then the, and people often think, you know, ketogenic diet is high fat. You know, what is the difference between just going on a ketogenic diet and then just the provision of ketones? So what's, you know, so the, the two yeah. different states are quite different or can be quite different, can't they? Yeah. So I look at it as like the word ketosis people um, use to encompass a series of processes that start in, in the natural state. You go into ketosis by releasing your like peripheral fat, converting that fat into ketones in the liver. Then we can detect the ketones in the blood and then the tissues of the body are burning ketones as a fuel. You know, maybe not like predominantly, but at least like partially, right? So there's this like end-to-end process. And if you're going on a ketogenic diet or you're fasting, you're doing the fat burning, you're making the ketones, you've got the ketones in the blood and you're oxidizing ketones. Now, depending on what we're talking about, each bit of that process can become like important. So if we're thinking about weight loss, really the most important thing is burning the fat. That's the most important thing. So if you're on the ketogenic diet for weight loss, then the bit you're interested in is triggering peripheral lipolysis. And if you're taking a keto, exogenous ketone, you're not doing that part. In fact, actually ketones have a negative feedback on the loop on their own in production. So if you take an exogenous ketone, at least acutely, you're sort of somewhat shutting down that peripheral lipolysis, that fat burning part. So Is that the same with both kind of at, at like really high levels or at small levels or just, you know, if you've got that presence of ketones and that yeah. is sending that... It's, it's at any level but it's not an on it's not binary on off okay it's like it's like graded so the more that you have the more profound the inhibition will be there'd probably also be a level over which like ketones won't inhibit anymore and you'll still get some lipolysis if the, like the stimulus is strong enough but i don't know um the exact kinetics of that but like so it's just not an on off but it will be like a little bit of a handbrake on your own like fat burning and also if you're on a ketogenic diet because you have like pre-diabetes or like poor metabolic health then actually you're also interested in decreasing the like um fluctuations in your blood glucose and just taking an exogenous ketone drink doesn't it w- does a little bit like there's some research around glucose control and exogenous ketones which i think is really interesting and promising but generally as a rule to try and like communicate with people it's like if you want to reduce those spikes in blood sugar eat less carbs eat less sugar and you that's the best way to do it so then you you have less less sugar oscillations less uh, more lipolysis and all of that is like really central to the ketogenic diet for weight loss and metabolic health so you know i try and like really strongly emphasize that just drinking ketones isn't going to mimic if you're really interested in metabolic health and weight loss these are sort of just not the same as the ketogenic diet. However, depending on the ketone supplement you use, a lot of the other processes can be replicated. So um, a ketone salt, that's going to deliver ketones into the blood and it's going to provide ketones for the tissues to oxidize. So you could get better at like burning the ketones. And if I pricked your finger, you're going to be clinically in a state of ketosis as defined by like having ketones in the blood. Um, the, some of the compounds that I've been researching at the Buck Institute are ketone esters, but they contain um, like almost like bits of coconut oil. So they contain fats that the body needs to make to, into ketones. And so actually with our compounds I'm working on now, we get the liver production of ketones and the ketones in the blood and the ketone oxidation and effects in the tissue. So it's sort of like, 
it's more a more complete replication of that process. So does the medium chain triglycerides, did they help, as I understand it, do they help your body produce ketones? Like, Yeah, so this is it, right? So people are like getting all het up because actually, yeah, MCTs are fats that your body makes into ketones in the same way that when you go on the ketogenic diet, you make your own fat into ketones. So actually using something that's like a medium chain fatty acid like base, it's probably going to like prime your systems to use your own fat for ketone production. But crucially for the weight loss piece, which is what so many people focus on, it's like, oh, well, you know, these aren't like real ketones. It's like, well, they, they are like they're ketones that are made in your liver. Like they are your ketones. They're not fake ketones in any way. You know, if you drink a salt, then that is keep not ketones that your body made. And they can still be used for energy and still be used as signals, but they're not ketones that your body made. But MCTs and the ester that I worked on that it has like an MCT in it, it's like it's 100% ketones that your body is made. But it's just not from your body fat, which is the critical distinction there for people who are like weight loss. Yeah, nice. And, and caffeine and I've heard like raw apple cider vinegar also can help your body produce ketones. Is that or is that yeah, stuff caffeine, I've heard that's not true? No, caffeine certainly uh apple cider vinegar pass like maybe i've not seen those studies i can't claim to know everything but caffeine um certainly helps with ketone production maybe why it's in some of the ketone salt blends yeah yeah and so with your um with regards to ketones if i just think about it from a fuel perspective like is there any application for them as an alternative sort of fuel source if for example someone has gut issues later on in an event whereby their ability to sort of uh break down and use carbohydrate might be compromised through you know fatigue or intensity yeah so i mean i I, and go back to what i was saying about sports performance there's nothing that says that no no data that suggests that exogenous ketones could be detrimental to performance at any intensity that we've studied yet so i think that's important you know I feel like uh, when in sports nutrition, we either set ourselves up as it's like, it helps or it doesn't help. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. when we talk about things not helping, they're like, well, that means that you shouldn't do it. But actually, I think that if there's no performance detriment, then it means that it's at least as good as the gold standard, right? Um, which means that if it's something that could complement your like plan, then it's there's no risk to doing it. And so um, I, I guess like, you know, specifically to answer your question, ketone esters and ketone salts to some degree they have um you need to build some tolerance to using them they're not necessarily all that easy on the gut Mm -hmm. and so unless you had practiced with them in training i wouldn't be saying oh yeah you know late in the race when your stomach's already a little bit sensitive take a ketone ester (laughs) yeah if you were not like accustomed to it it may not end well for you um not like depending on what the compound is like the salts sometimes cause a bit more like lower gi issues the esters sometimes cause a bit more like nausea and like that kind of thing because they just don't taste so good but you know they're not they're not completely inert they taste very bitter it may not be the kind of thing that you want to be eating later on in the race but actually what i would maybe suggest in in um in place of that would be to early on in the race to mix in your fuels a bit more Mm. before your sort of and then you know go to carbohydrates only like later in the race because what we have seen and the way that we think that ketones would work for performance is more by like sparing carbohydrates early on in the race um so if anything i would probably more like front load a race with ketones than than back end a race with ketones if i was gonna 
Yeah, no, interesting. And look, I know that um, we don't have a lot of time and, and I'm just going to ask you a question which could be like three hours worth of your time, mm-hmm. but it won't. But just to sort of premise like, so you're now back at the Buck Institute. Well, no, you're at the Buck Institute. You're back mm-hmm. into academia and you're looking at ketone metabolism in the brain. Is that right? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working with a lab whose focus is ketones in the brain. Uh, but really what I do is more like... Um, they they developed a, the whole family of other ketone esters, and I'm looking at ways that we can make those into like things that people can like hold and touch and interact with. So you know we talked a little bit. I worked with HBMN, and we launched this product, and now um, the Buck Institute partnered with a company called Juvenescence to launch like this ketone product as well. So I've been doing a lot of the um, first in human trials to understand how these compounds affect ketone levels, how they affect glucose levels, how safe and tolerable they are. And, you know, the work that I'm uh, working on now is sort of planning. um, We'll look at ketones uh, in uh, elderly people, hopefully, ketones in like some certain military use cases, hopefully. So um, I'm kind of like a bit of a satellite to the lab at the Buck because they're all people who are wizards with pipettes and with animal experiments. And I've um, done some of those in my time, but I'm actually lots better with people. Um, so um, I use all of the technology and, and um, knowledge that comes out of the Buck. And I'm trans- my you know, title at the Buck is Translational Scientist. And so my job is to partner with people and partner with companies to find ways to make that um, into like human interventions. Nice. And with regards to the brain, like what, like, can we say anything about how these products might potentially be beneficial in the groups that you're looking at, Brianna? I mean, um, we know that the brain is like a very avid user of ketones. Uh, I guess in terms of like the basic science hypotheses, we know that we know that um, glucose metabolism is like a thing that can limit brain function in uh, older adults you know people um start to glucose metabolism starts to decline um in that case rescuing brain glucose metabolism with ketone metabolism is is has a lot of promise and there's a series of studies um that were done at a university up in canada by a researcher called dr stephen kunane who used a kind of less powerful ketone drink like an mct based drink but he looked at brain energy metabolism and also cognitive function and saw that both both were somewhat rescued by um, supplementation with this MCT and that there was a direct relationship between the level of ketones that people got to in their blood and the outcomes that they saw. So I think that there's, you know, it's very early, but there's good signal. And we see in our animal experiments, good signal that um, the brain is like a very good target organ for ketones. And, you know, I mentioned the heart as well. And this is an area that we're actively researching and looking at um you know the it's the heart is called like the metabolic omnivore it can metabolize lactate bhb glucose fatty acids but um in i think one thing to emphasize is for the brain and the heart we mainly see benefits when the system is compromised yeah so no one or you know there's not very good evidence yet that like if you're aging healthily or you know you and i like young healthy people that we take ketones that that's going to do something to our brain like maybe maybe not well it would probably do something but would it be beneficial over and above like our baseline good function but when we see function in either the brain or the heart start to decline because of either age or disease then ketones seem to have like a somewhat restorative effect to like kind of bring you back up to that baseline 
And I think this is something, right, where a lot of um, companies would be like, shown to help brain health. And it's like, well, only if you're already like somewhat compromised. Yeah. And the same with the heart. Like um, in models of heart failure, giving the heart ketones can like re- re-up the heart's like function and protect against more decline. But, you know, like it's a little bit like what we were talking about me doing the ketogenic diet. It's like if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, don't, you don't need to fix it. Is that the expression? So I think that um, in terms of treating disease areas where function is compromised, really interested in the brain, really interested in the heart, and in the, both of those systems, ketones affect energy metabolism, but also affect um, inflammation and oxidative stress and some of these more like signaling activities. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, we think that those mechanisms are quite kind of conserved between these like organ systems and they're both like really, really energy, you know, high energy consumers and very like metabolically active and there's good um in humans there's decent data with infusions of ketones and looking at heart function in the same way that I was mentioning in humans there's this data with um Stephen Cunane's MCT study that looks at brain function and ketones as well. So those are the two where there's like good animal data but also some proof of concept in humans with a functional deficit that yeah, we can nice. kind of target that. And like with athletes, like, you know, there are these increasing sort of, it appears to be kind of increasing prevalence of athletes who have um, kind of cardiac issues. Brianna, like, mm. is there any, could you see that in the future there could be any application in that sort of group of people who are, um, who, I know, atrial fibrillation or, or anything like that? That's a really interesting question and not one that I've thought about. And I don't, um, I'm not an expert as to like what goes on in the athlete heart that like causes those sudden cardiac arrests and death. So I guess, you know, I don't want to speculate too much without knowing about it. My instinct is like, possibly, I would love to like find out more about it. Um, one area where I think that ketones are kind of interesting for athletes in the acute sense is traumatic brain injury, because traumatic brain injury is almost like an accelerated form of like stress and aging in the brain. You have like not only the damage that's caused by the impact itself, that you set up a whole inflammatory cascade that um, decreases energy metabolism, increases inflammation, increases oxidative stress. And those are the three things that I just told you that ketones are good for counteracting. And there's a very, very good um, base uh, sort of um, set of animal literature, like pretty, pretty thorough that shows that either pre-treating or post-treating with ketones can reduce like the injury size but then also uh, restore function better post-injury in animals now for me it's like super frustrating because it's almost impossible to run these studies in people because you can't do an rct of concussion um in any situations where you might get people getting more concussions like if you studied a boxing team or a football team or a wrestling team the it's we don't have very any any really good biomarkers we don't really have very many like good um you know other non-subjective outcomes so like I, I study the team doctor and I ask you like how you're feeling and like can you walk in this straight line and like do you have a headache and like that kind of thing but it's not like um there's not a good way that I can prospectively assign people to like ketones or not and then really like tease out the differences in response so like there's a you know a lot of good basic science that suggested it would be helpful if I had a kid playing like little league football or whatever or you know a kid that fell off um like a high um you know piece of playing equipment or whatever I'd probably like it would be a gamble that I would take based on the fact that there's no RCTs but like the mechanistic data is pretty good um but you know we need the rcts but we don't really know how to do them yeah 
Yeah, okay. And um, with regards to to the diff- any differences between sex, so do women respond differently to men with regards to ketones or risk, anything like that? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And with the exogenous ketone, so ketogenic diet, it looks like there may be some sex differences um, or at least some like considerations that women need to take um, if they're following a ketogenic diet versus men. But with ketone supplements, like really the only way that we've characterized these so far is the effects of them on like um, blood ketone and glucose levels. And we don't see sex differences there. So in terms of like the very high level, like, you know, me or my partner could drink one of these like bottles and, you know, it would have, according to our body weight, like a a roughly proportional response. But um, we do see it in some of our animal work that like the ability to oxidize ketones can change over time with sex um with sex and with age uh, so actually like i really wouldn't rule out that age and sex are two really important variables in responses that are probably more like nuanced than just like blood ketone response because i think like these things they do tend to work like fairly similarly um just in terms of like oh i drink this i'm in ketosis or i have like high ketones in the blood but if we're looking at like a functional outcome like um, like any functional outcome there probably probably are differences between men and women and also uh between different ages yeah interesting because if you look at some of the the literature it appears that you know women are at an increased risk of uh dementia and alzheimer's as we age so there may well be i don't know differences in in kind of application there for sure and i mean um it's like the the sort of the story of the ketogenic diet and exogenous ketone like space is still so early that i think that one of the things as a researcher in the space that i'll say to anyone who i talk to it's like you know we've still got a lot of chapters of this story to write and so trying to come to any definitive conclusion at this point is not helpful but also it's not helpful for me or any like any like one who's out there on the internet being like oh ketogenic diet should be great for like alzheimer's disease it's like well you know like we're still too early to say that either way and that that's when you get in the arguments about well no it's not it's like well maybe it is but it's like maybe it is we still need to prove prove it and you know like this is why we think that maybe um and you know to to your point i think future studies really need to be bigger so that we can more clearly like stratify by um sex but also things like i don't know if we're doing brain health like apoe4 like um certain genes involved in lipid metabolism that have been shown to be like major risk factors for alzheimer's um maybe also just like stratify for baseline metabolic health as well so like if you had you know we're actually learning about dementia that it's that having one term for it isn't really that constructive and that there's like different phenotypes within that, like more metabolic rooted dementia versus more like protein, like misfolding root, you know, like we might want to be able to stratify people based on like, if they have diabetes or metabolic syndrome at the outset versus not like there, there'd be, you know, once you get a bigger study, you can start to analyze all of these sub questions. Um, but you know, you're kind of right. Like if we, don't in these first studies and we may miss a signal that's there for a certain population like maybe when we analyze men and women together we don't really see anything but then we analyze women separately we see like a big difference so yeah it's a parallel science mate you know a lot about ketones and actually what I love about you Brana is that and I hear this with all of your podcasts that I've um, listened to on and, and sort of um uh over the years is that you're very considered with your 
you're considered and reasonable with your responses. You know, you sort of set the science sort of where it's at rather than go off on um, uh, not tangents, but enhancing or manipulating some results. Like that's what mm. I love about it. In in this space, especially like being you know, kind of labeled quote unquote keto researcher. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely feel like I have to heavily, heavily like set the stage for where the research actually is. But you know, I don't wanna I don't want people to lose hope or optimism that like there could be effects. And like when it was really hard for me personally to kind of come to terms with the studies that didn't replicate the Oxford study for performance, it was like gosh, like, did we do something wrong? Or did like, you know, what, like, what did they do something wrong? Like, why didn't we see this again? And it's like, well, you know, science is like each independent researcher putting bricks in a wall and you have to, you have to look at the whole thing and look at the differences between each experiment and try and think about all of this different context. And also I think one thing I've seen with the coronavirus pandemic is like people expect scientists to actually like always have the answers, but actually people are always updating their thinking based on new data coming in. And it's like, it's okay to change your mind in fact is more of it's more of an attribute to be able to change your mind in science than it is to be able to like kill everyone and defend your position so actually i try and um try and be like considered and uh, point out all the areas where we don't know stuff and but try and still preserve a bit of that optimism and excitement because it is you know i'm glad very excited to be in this field i think there's a big potential for impact um you know in the future hopefully no, I love it. And, you know, we we really just sort of really uh, touched on the surface of so many different areas, Brown. And I would love to, at some stage, maybe have you back on and really sort of do a deeper dive into the potential uh, effects of ketones on like brain metabolism, heart metabolism, and the stuff that you're working on now. Yes. That would be amazing. Awesome. Brown, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the yeah, rest of your day. Of course. Have a great one. team hope you enjoyed that conversation and I certainly learned a lot um, and it was just really good to have a really robust discussion with someone who has been so seminal in the field of our understanding of exogenous ketones and the implications for health and performance and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of her most current research looking at ketones for the brain. Next week I get to chat to Bob Sieberhor which is the guy that got me interested in metabolic efficiency way back many years ago when I was working at AUT and so he coined the term metabolic efficiency and his whole area of research has been on nutrient timing on being able to utilize fuel substrate for performance and just changing our understanding of our requirements for for our sports so Bob and I have a great conversation and you'll note that he is super enthusiastic. Until then though, you have a great week and you can reach me on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up for access to my weekly email, to the recipes that I put up every week to get me to answer any questions that you might have and also to my Real Food Nutrition group which is super active right now because we kicked off with Monday's Matter uh, with over 400 members actually on Monday so it's, there's a really good vibe in that group. 
or you can sign up to one of my other plans such as my athlete plan, my keto longevity plan, or even book a consultation because they're unavailable for that as well. All right team, well I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and I look forward to tuning in next week. Alrighty, see you soon.